Going to uh, Trek, you can be dismissed now, and I'll invite everybody else to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, or 12, rather. <laughs> you thought we were moving back in time, didn't you? We just got to 12, and we're going to restart. Chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 27 through about 36. And we're looking at this moment of where Jesus is now speaking uh, to this crowd or semi-crowd that's gathered around him. And it's causing us to think, it should cause us to think, about the most definitive moment in human history. And you need to think, does history, humanity, of humanity, have any kind of true watershed that this is the moment that changed everything in the way that we would look at now. I mean, you think about how would any kind of other historian think about it? And they think, wait, was it the Greek Empire? Was it the Roman Empire? What about the discovery of the New World, 1492? The Protestant Reformation in the 1500s? Or is it America becoming the world's supreme superpower? Or was it development of Marxism? Or on and on and on and on. What moment? Or is there a moment in history that just defines everything before it and everything after it? That everything that came before it was building to it, and everything that comes after it was looking back upon it. And we as Christians, we obviously know the truth of that. Like, we understand that this is, we're talking about the crucifixion. The crucifixion is that moment, that stake in the ground on the timeline of history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All history prior to it was building towards it, and all history that comes after it looks back upon it and is subsequent to it. The crucifixion is what all of history has been about. So all of history from creation to A.D. 33 was building towards that moment. And then all history from 33 A.D. to 2021, where we are right now this very minute, has all, it's the reason for it. We count time. Have you considered this? We count time on the basis of Jesus. That's how we get our years. That's how we understand time. There's no other reason to have even have it a seven-day week except for that Christ is real as the triune God of the universe and created in six days, rested on the seventh, and then he's raised on the first day of the week. So we are going to look at this moment. Jesus is going to highlight this idea, this, the, the ominous, the nature, the terror of the cross, but the magnitude of it in this text personally from his own mouth. He's going to speak along these lines. And just to put us back where we were, remember we're at Passover this is the last Passover that John records, the last Passover that Jesus will be a part of and his life on earth. Before, Lazarus comes out of the tomb, was dead, is now alive. And then uh, a couple days go by, and, and at the beginning of chapter 12, Mary washes his feet, right, with that nard, that pure, expensive ointment, washes his feet with her hair. Lazarus is at the table. And then after that comes the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, and this big moment happens where he's just bombarded by all of these people who are a mixture of right worshipers and wrong worshipers, truly converted, and just those who are there for the show. And then now he's been publicly teaching since verse 23, all because those Gentiles said, we want to see Jesus. And we're in a continuation of that in verse 27. So follow along with me. Now... Is my soul troubled, says Jesus. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus just said, now is my soul troubled. 
But if you remember last week, wasn't he just talking about how a grain of wheat can't multiply unless it dies? He's like, I get it. I understand what's happening here. I'm about this. And then he's telling everybody who clings to their life, who remains a seed, remains a kernel, will never multiply and is not worthy of following me. But then he says in the same, very same breath, now is my soul troubled. We're obviously stepping into right now the true humanity of Christ. That this is Jesus' real and authentic humanity. He is truly man and truly God. This is a truly man. He understands what the cross is. He understands what it means that the hour is now here. And he's not flippant about it. And he chooses to speak out loud this trouble. And the word trouble is the Greek word terasso. It's, it's not just like, this is bothersome. This is the word for revulsion, agitation, horror even. Anxious horror. So he's not just a little bit upset. He's horrified. He's clearly not some dispassionate actor just playing out a role and just following the script. He's, he feels it. Do you remember the first time, whether it was a play or a movie, and you saw an actor, and that movie just, I mean, it meant so much to you, and then the first time you realized that that actor wasn't really that person, and they didn't really care about the cause that they were in, especially when it's a, when it's a, a production about some big character quality like honor or bravery, courage, standing for the truth, and then you hear the interview with that actor, and they... They couldn't care less about that. Or they're not that moment at all. Or you find out they can't really box. <laughs> You're, you were so wrapped up in it. And then the actor just was playing a bit. Was just doing a, was doing a part. We clearly see here Jesus is not that. And we could be tempted to think that. Because we know, well, he knows all things. He's all powerful. So, I mean, of course he's, you know, he knows it's coming. But he says, my soul is troubled. I am horrified. He says out loud, unprovoked un, uh, to say this. So the Greeks coming to him has triggered this moment. Not that as if they had any power, but now Jesus knows this is the time. The world is coming to me. It's not just the Jews. Gentiles want to hear and they want to believe. The cross's shadow is stretching all the way out to him. The crucifixion is now imminent. And he's saying, my soul is troubled by this ominous nearness. It wasn't a formality that the Trinity went through, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, the crucifixion. It wasn't just an arbitrary hoop. Well, we set this hoop up and we got to jump through it. We wrote the script for the play. It's got to go this way. It's kind of a bummer. It's a hard part to play, but he'll make it through. It wasn't just a show for our benefit. No, it's, this is real. And Jesus understood the cross. And he understood what it is. Well, why would my soul be troubled? He understands that it's the wrath of God against sin. That's what he's headed for. He knew exactly what that wrath was because it was also his wrath. Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb. He is truly God, so he does have wrath against sin. Enduring that wrath was not going to be joyful. It was going to be dreadful. So he's dreading it. In his humanity, Jesus was truly dreading the cross. Now, here's what we need to do at this moment before we go any further. Jesus' soul being troubled by the cross should cause us to have a new and tighter grasp on the weight of our sin. Because what is he dreading? What was he dying for? Our sin. What was God's wrath for? 
our sin. And if the payment for that sin is so severe, is so heavy, is so high, that Jesus, who we know from John 1, 1, is the creator. He is God and he is the creator. If it's causing the creator in his humanity to be troubled to the point of horror and terror, then how should we understand and view our sin? And then, conversely, how should we understand and view the love of God for us to go and endure this? See, if this isn't the case, we have a big problem. If, if Jesus is just, his soul is troubled because he knows the nails are really big. And if his soul is just troubled because he knows the thorns they're going to use, there's this special kind of Near Eastern thorn that are like three inches long. If he's only troubled because he knows that what you die from on the cross is, is asphyxiation, is suffocating. If that's what he's afraid of, then what makes him any more noble, any better, or any more worthy than any other martyr in church history? When Polycarp, who was a disciple of John in the first century, was being, he was going to be strapped with raw meat and thrown into the lions in the Roman Colosseum. And you know what he said at that moment? He said, I can... I am honored to have my bones ground pure like flour for the cause of Christ by the teeth of the lions. He's viewing himself as flour getting beat into the powder by the teeth of the lions. And then Latimer and Ridley, these last men of these two famous men in the English persecution, Latimer turns to Ridley while they're being strapped to a stake and piled around with hay to be burned alive. He says to his friend, Ridley, play the man. This fire will light a candle in England that can never be put out. And it was right. Bravely going to a martyr's death. And Stephen in Acts chapter 8, he doesn't say, when my, my soul is troubled, or Acts chapter 7, my soul is troubled. He just starts preaching a whole biblical anthology. And then while they're stoning him, he just looks up to heaven and sees heaven and asks God, hey, let them, let's not count against them. No, no talk about soul being troubled. No Gethsemane moment where he's praying, God, let this cup pass from me. So if what Jesus is destined to endure is just physical pain, then we have better heroes than him. Clearly, what he's dreading is the cost for sin. The wrath of God poured out, the Old Testament says, to the dregs, like a cup that's being tipped over and every drop of the wrath of God is going to come out. That's what he's dreading. But what was he going to do? Verse 27. Is he going to run? Is he going to quit? Is he going to say, no, I'm out? He says, Father, or he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now, Grammatically, in the original languages, this part is really hard to translate because where do you put question marks? Because Greek doesn't really have question marks or commas and things like that. Uh, the way that it should come across is, Father, save me from this hour, semicolon, but I'm going to go anyways. But I know this is my purpose. Because in Gethsemane, he really prays, let this cup pass from me. Unless you, it's, this is the only way for your will to be accomplished. So he's really praying, I do not want to endure this, but I am not going to evade it. He's aware his entire purpose for 33 years has been leading to this moment. He is days away. He's in the week. 
Friday is coming when he'll be crucified. He's not going to ask God to save him from the cross. If he did, his life on earth would have been worthless. To get to this point and say, now, nah, I, I, I can't take it. Then the whole thing was worthless. 33 years just down the tubes. And greater than that, it would have been to reject the very will of God. You would have had a schism in the Trinity, a fracturing of the Trinity. So he doesn't say, save me. But instead, look at verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. Not save me, Father, glorify your name. Let's contemplate this for a moment. Don't spare me, glorify yourself. Instead, Father. Once again, proving to be our perfect and ultimate example of all faithfulness, all obedience, all commitment to the glory of God. Jesus says, if it's between sparing me or you getting glory, then I want you to get glory. I want you to be glorified. Jesus would rather God be glorified than him be spared unspeakable suffering, the pouring out of the wrath of God on his very person. It sounds like his chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, we did several weeks ago in the evening. Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, whatever it takes for God to be glorified, I'm willing to do. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm in for. Whatever it takes, even when that means death on a cross under the full wrath of God. Now, in this moment, think about it. Who is he talking to? I mean, who is around? We got to put this in context. Remember, Philip and Andrew come and say, hey, Greeks want to talk to you. And then he just starts talking about this is the hour has come. The wheat's got to fall and got to die in order to multiply. The same's got to be true for my followers. My soul is troubled. And now he starts praying to God. And people are just watching him do that. They're just watching him be this example. This is for us. This could have taken place entirely internally, inside the mind of Christ, the person of Christ. Like we have those moments all the time. But he speaks it out loud so that we know, so that John knows he saw this happen. This very moment, this is for our benefit. And then something happens. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, this is relatively uncharacteristic for the Father, is it not? But can you think of two other times when this has happened? Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. So when Jesus is baptized... Similar phrases are coming as the same thing as the transfiguration when he's shown in a portion of his true glory on that mountain in Matthew 16. Uh, or, yeah, Matthew 16. And the father says in those times, he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But this time when the father bursts into the natural order by speaking out loud, he says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again meaning I've been glorifying my name your whole life. Everything that you've been doing has been for my glory. So I have glorified my name through you, and I will do it again, meaning at the cross and at the resurrection. It's been all about God's glory. What you're seeing here is the unfracturable unity of the Trinity. The same will, same mind, same essence for all three members. This time, he's affirming Jesus the Father, and himself. So the glory of God, this, Jesus' prayer is affirmed. This is the right thing to pray at this moment when we would be looking for any other way out. Jesus is saying, I would 
definitely prefer a way out, but I'm not moving off this train track until you, unless you move the whole track. I'm staying right with it. He, our supreme aim, as it was Jesus, it should be to glorify God. When we're presented with a quandary or a question, our understanding, our, our decision-making metric should be, how will God be most glorified? What will bring him the most glory? And if I don't know what that is, then I'm going to ask like Jesus, just glorify your name in my life. I don't know. I can't see everything. But glorify your name in my life. The Father speaks, and people are still around. Look at verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, said an angel has spoken to him. The crowd doesn't get it. So they, some are saying, ah, it's just thunder and weird middle of the day, Passover time. Others are like, wow, it had to be an angel. Nobody knew what was said, though. God speaks, and only Jesus, and maybe the disciples, maybe Jesus told the disciples later on what he said. Few hear it. God speaks. Some people are like, that's just loud noise. Other people are like, wow, something happened, weird. Uh, maybe an angel, but they don't know what was said. They don't hear the words. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 13, 13, 13 through 15. Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have clothes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And I turn and I would heal them. These people have ears, but they don't, aren't able to hear. We're seeing this confusion. We're privileged, privileged to know what's being said. But why would John include this? God speaks and nobody gets it. Why, why is this here? Because this is not in any other four gospels. Remember, what's John's purpose for writing? Back to chapter 20, verse 31 so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by faith in him, believing in him, you will have eternal life. That's why I've written all of these things. So this has some evangelistic purpose for being included in this passage. There's an evangelism reason that God can thunder from heaven with a clear voice, and many people will just go, we heard a noise. That God can speak from heaven directly to his son, break into the natural order supernaturally, and some people will think, yeah, something weird happened. Maybe it was an angel. And they won't hear it. That God can speak and people won't hear. How do people hear the gospel? God himself has just spoken audibly, and they didn't hear it. People hear the gospel when God gives them ears to hear. They can see a miracle. They can go, yeah, that was, whoa, that was crazy. That was weird. That was miraculous. An angel must have been talking or something. But they missed the message that Jesus is the Christ, the one who's sent to glorify him. Hey, they, they've missed it. So we preach Christ. Here's the application from that little point. As loudly as we can. We preach the gospel as loudly as we can, knowing some will remain deaf to the words, and they'll just call it thundering. Some will see precision and accuracy and think, yeah, that was special, but it won't do anything to change their lives. Unless God grants them faith, no man, no woman, no child will hear, believe, and repent. 
because it just happens right here. Like, what can we do more than God? Can I speak better than God? And if God speaks and people don't believe, then what can I do more than that? What could you do more than that? So we speak and we let God handle the reality. Have you ever thought about that old song? I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to see you. We don't sing it anymore. It's not cool anymore. Songs completely become uncool after about 10 years, apparently. Uh, but I, uh, my, a friend and mentor used to say, you know what? I hate that song. Because what if God speaks to me and I hear his voice and it sounds like when he talks to Job? And he says, gird up your loins like a man and you instruct me. What if that's how God talks to me? I don't want that. I want to just, let's just stick to the Bible here. What is it? It's judgment. You can't hear it. God spoke and you didn't hear it. We tend to presume that I'll always understand and I'll always, the miraculous moment that happens, if I'm around it, it will always be a benefit. It will always be a blessing. These people hear the voice of God and they're like, yeah, it was weird, thunder, but no rain clouds. Or like, oh, maybe an angel. That was weird. Anyways, moving on. That's where they go. So why speak this? Verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It seems like it was only for Jesus' sake. Right? Jesus is the one whose soul is troubled. He's in this place. He's calling out to his heavenly father. And his father assures him that you are on the right path. It seems like an encouragement to him. And really, you could translate verse 30. This, this voice has come for your sake, not mine only. So, of course, it was edifying to him. And Jesus didn't need to hear God's, father, God's voice audibly in order to be assured. He was already assured. But these people are the true beneficiaries of it. It seems like this voice is for Jesus to encourage and reassure, but Jesus says it's for the crowd. Why? How? How is this for the people? Verse 31 is the answer. Now is the judgment of this world. That's why. This is for you, because now is the judgment of the world. Judgment is here. This supernatural moment of God speaking thunderously, audibly, during the Passover feast was so that you would awaken the crowd so that they would hear. Because now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is saying, this voice, you heard this thunder, this voice of an angel, God speaking, because you need to know everything I've been saying is true. The moment is here. This is the real thing. I haven't been kidding. I haven't been joking. I'm not a cult leader. I'm not making up any new religion. I'm not anti-God. I'm not doing my own thing on my own agenda. I'm with the Father. This is affirming me to you. This is for you. And you need to hear it now because judgment is here, he says. Now is the judgment. They heard God's voice because judgment is here. Not just for the world, but what does it say? Well, the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? Let me read you a few other passages and we can piece this all together the way this one is described. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, meaning unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, sounds like the same one who does the blinding of the minds of the unbelievers to keep people from seeing Christ. Ephesians 2.2 2. Sinful ways, jumping in the middle of a sentence here, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now the work in the sons of disobedience. So this sounds like the same one, affecting people to not see the gospel. First John 5, 19. 
We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, now we know. This is talking about Satan. So the judgment is coming for the world, but also for Satan. Now let's sit in the gravity at this moment where we are in biblical history. This much Bible has happened and now we're here. What all has gone before this in redemptive history? Where's the first gospel presentation in the Bible? Genesis 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. When God is cursing the man and the woman and the serpent, and in speaking to the serpent directly, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A lot of stuff in there that sounds like, ah, that's pretty close, but wait a minute. This is supposed to be translated seed. Women don't have seed. So some woman is going to have a baby all on her own. And what that one's going to do is bruise the head of the serpent. What happens when you're trying to kill a snake and you have no gun or machete or bazooka or whatever you want to do to blow the snake up? And you got nothing, but you got boots on. What are you going to do? Stomp his head with your heel. Are you going to do it gently so you don't hurt your heel? Or are you going to make sure that snake is really, really dead? You're going to stomp the, I don't care if I break my foot, that snake is going to die. So it's going to suffer a head wound, and I might have a bruised heel, but the snake is going to be dead. So this is what Jesus is, or God is saying to the serpent, there is one who's going to come, born of the woman, only of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. His heel will be bruised, a temporary injury, but you're going to receive a death blow to the head. And so Jesus just said, now is the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Realize where we are in redemptive history. We go from Genesis 3:15 with the gospel first coming, grace being poured out on people who didn't deserve it, who had just sinned against him. Then you get to Genesis 12 with Abraham and God gets more specific saying, "Hey, that one, that seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent is going to come from this guy's family." Then he has eventually 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. 12 tribes. And then David comes along from the tribe of Judah, and he says, the one who's going to rule forever as that king, he's going to come from your family, 2 Samuel 7. And then some time goes on, and we're like, well, is he? it wasn't David because David died, and we still have evil. Well, then what are we waiting for? So you see all this lineage of kings who are all failures, ultimately. Even if they're not failures, they eventually just die. And then the whole nation of Israel is cast out of the land and they're in Babylon. And then Jeremiah, the prophet in chapter 31, gets this prophecy and says there's a new covenant coming. Not like the one I did with Moses, a different one. One is going to come. It's going to be ushered in. And I'm going to write my law in your hearts. It's not going to be outside of you. It's going to be inside of you. My spirit's not going to be in the temple. He's going to be in you. And then you're waiting. Several hundred years go by. After Malachi's done writing, 400 years of silence go by. But then you have one come, crying like a voice in the wilderness named John the Baptist. And he says, there's one coming after me. He's the, he's the one. He's the one that all of history has been looking for. He's the one that goes back to Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then now we get to this point. He's been preaching throughout all of Judea, all of Israel, to the, to the national people of God. Gentiles come to him. The world is coming to him. Triggers the moment of the cross. And now Jesus says, now is the judgment for the world and for the evil one. That the cross is going to be this death blow. 
Satan is staggering around now as a dying foe because his head has been crushed by the heel of the seed of the woman. And Jesus says in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, what does that sound like? A cross being lifted up and also being lifted up and ascended too. You should see both of them in this passage. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, meaning all kinds of people to myself. All representatives, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. We lift it up, crucified and glorified. Jesus there describes the bruised heel. I'm going to be lifted up. My heel's going to be bruised. But now the seed of the woman is going to make a nation of Abraham's offspring, drawing all people to himself. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? The Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.15, 17 promise. Here's the one. He's finally here. The one that came from David's family. The one who fulfills the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This is the one. If you are Christ, then that's the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He's the seed who comes from the woman who, who bruises his heel but kills the serpent. And Galatians 3.16 says it like this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus, right now, is talking about the fulfillment of everything that's been building since the fall of man. That's this moment. He's saying, this is what's upon us. This is what is days away from us. The fulfillment of the covenant of the grace, of covenant of grace, the zenith of history is here. We're at it. The day that all the faithful of the Old Testament were looking forward to is now upon us, minutes away. The faithful have been saying in every era, who will come from Abraham? Who will come from David? Who is that one singular seed to destroy evil and save God's people? Who is that one? They've been saying that and looking for that for every generation until now. He's here. And by his death, he will crush the head of Satan and shatter the slavery chains of sin. Drawing all kinds of people, this is the crushing of Satan. One commentator, uh, Hendrickson, he said, the drawing of all men to the Christ is the casting out of the devil. He loses his power over the nations. He's no longer the prince of the power of the air. He has been defeated, been dealt the death blow. Jesus continues, he said this, or John commentates, rather, verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is not miscommunicating. He's not misunderstanding. John's saying, this is on purpose. This is all on purpose. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He's going to do all this through his death. All the promises find their yes in him. They become true in him. This is the majestic paradox, the victory through defeat, the life through death. This is all wonderfully obvious to us as, first, or as 21st century New Testament saturated people. But put yourself back in first century Palestine and then sympathize with verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Hey, we, we don't get it. We've been told, we understand that the Messiah who comes 
is going to be for eternal. He's not going to die. And whether they're asking this question maliciously or just kind of ignorantly, but you can go either way with it, but the point is the question was asked, and it seems like based on a handful of verses that this can't, this can't be. They're thinking of verses like Psalm 89, 3 through 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, and I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That sounds like he's the Messiah is forever. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, going back to Genesis 14, forever. Isaiah 6, or Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. We read this mostly at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will shall, stand, shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It will be forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then lastly, they could be thinking of Ezekiel 37, 25. They have their Old Testament and they know it. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, son of David, what Jesus is called, my servant shall be their prince forever. So by isolating these verses, they couldn't help but think any other way. They pulled them out of context and go, the Messiah is going to be here. He's going to be here forever. He's going to be eternal. Now, we certainly know that Jesus is eternal. Don't hear me up here saying Jesus is not eternal. But they didn't see any kind of death in this moment. Any kind of death as a payment for sin. What, what did it mean that the, that the heel would be bruised? They couldn't see it. So they have the Bible, and they're, they're expecting a Messiah. It's almost like coming up on people at the tennis courts at the local public park playing tennis, and instead of rackets, they have frying pans. Looks kind of the same, right? Similar type shapes, got a handle, a round thing. You're playing with a ball. You're on the right court. And then you show up and go, what are you guys playing? Oh, we're playing tennis. What do you have in your hands? Tennis rackets. Well, actually... They're about a foot and a half longer, and they're about three pounds lighter, and they have strings, and you can swing real easy, and you can spin the ball, and you can put it where it is. And they're like, no, 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 this is how we play tennis. And I was like, no, 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 this, that's not tennis. You're close. You're real close. But when you hit that ball, it makes a loud noise. You can't put any spin on it because it's slick. You can't really understand the rules. You can't do the full power of a serve. You, you, you just, you're missing it by this much. But if I give you a racket, what would that do? Revolutionize how you play. If you can hit a ball back and forth with a frying pan, then imagine what you could do with the instrument that's actually made for that. Jesus is putting in their hands, John writing here in the New Testament, here's the racket. You were so close. You got the right shape. You just missed some critical details. You, you didn't line up a few critical points on all of this. This crowd has two questions from their confusion. They say, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. We thought the Son of Man was eternal, like he, he, he couldn't die. How can the Son of Man die? And then who is the Son of Man? But Jesus didn't say anything about the Son of Man just then, did he? They must have been listening back to verse uh, 23 and, or even further back when Jesus talks about himself being the Son of Man. 
and now they bring it back up and they're putting all these pieces together. They don't understand their Old Testament the way that they should and they don't understand Jesus the way that they should. That he is the son of man from Daniel 7, the one who's going to come from the ancient of days with victory. Their utter confusion, their darkened minds is why Jesus says the next two verses, the last ones we're going to look at. They, they've just missed it because the enemy has not been defeated. They still have the, the prince of the power of the air. Not as if he's inactive now, extremely active then, particularly among the people of Israel. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, so he said to them, based on what they said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Did he answer the question they asked? No. Not the way they wanted him to. They asked two questions about the Son of Man. He doesn't say anything about the Son of Man, anything about his eternal state, anything about uh, how can he be lifted up or who he is. He just preaches what he wants to preach because he's going at right at the kernel of the problem. See, they're sidetracked on secondary issues, similar to the woman at the well. What does she do when Jesus comes in full force? She's like, well, you guys are from down there, and y'all say that we're supposed to worship on that mountain, and then we live here, we're supposed to worship on this mountain. What's, what's really going on? Jesus is not going to deal with that sidetracked nonsense. He's going right to the issue. You need to be converted right now. And that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's not going to play this sidetracked game. He's going to go after matters of first importance. Is the interpretation of the messianic prophecies important? Absolutely it is. 2 Timothy 3.16 is always true, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. We know that, and we understand that, and we believe that. But these people, the crisis that they're having is not a crisis of facts, it's a crisis of faith. Now, our faith is not void of facts, certainly not. But the first fact that must be embraced is that God is real. He created all things. You have sinned against him. And that Jesus Christ is the mediator, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that can only be applied to you when you believe in him and turn from your sin, which we call repentance. That's the first fact that they have to embrace. These people are in the darkness and they need the light to be able to see and to embrace him as the truth. There's been plenty of times throughout ministry where I've had these moments along these same lines. It happens a lot of times in premarital counseling when they want you to do your wedding, and I'm like, I'm not going to do your wedding unless I can sit down with you and talk to you for a while. Find out this one couple, she's a believer and he's not. And I say, look, we're, we're not going any further than this. Clearly, we have understand, different understandings of the gospel here. You're a Christian and you are not. I'm not going to give you guys tips on how to balance your budget, how to fight fair, how to get along with your in-laws and do all of these other things when the biggest problem that you have is one of eternal condemnation versus glory. That's not your biggest problem. It's not, we need to figure out how we, we you know, balance our budget and how to you know, handle intimacy issues. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is your soul. That's what we go after. That's what Jesus is going after. Your biggest problem is not that you, you whiffed on Psalm 89 and Ezekiel 37. Your biggest problem is that you have not repented and trusted in Christ. You don't have the faith that Abraham had in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what he's going after. 
the darkness of their minds. So he says, he, like right now, we, he says, this light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. You're gonna be like, he's pleading with these people. Judgment is here. The hour has come. We're not going to debate these things. We're not going to have theological lectures. That's not the need of the hour. The need of the hour is that I am the light. And that light, John 1, 4 says, is the light of men, the life of men. So he says, darkness is going to overtake you. And that overtake is a word not just like, oh, it, it kind of got on me. It's katalambano in Greek. It means to seize, to attack, to own. That darkness is going to own you if you don't run to the light. He says, right now, verse 36, you have the opportunity to become sons. Right now, you have that opportunity. Don't stubbornly remain strangers, but believe in the light now. The same impotence that Paul puts on the gospel message in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, when he says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't hear this message and just let it do nothing. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the day favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the time to listen. This is the time to respond. Sometimes what we do uh, in our attempts to be to have a religion that we know is not just fluffy nonsense faith that we just step out into the darkness and we have no idea where we're going. We, we take apologetics and we start discipling somebody before they have eyes to see and they have ears to hear. We start showing them proofs in the Bible. We start showing them uh, understanding about philosophy and, and then just how common logic fits all these things. We're discipling people who do not know the truth. They don't have eyes to see. They're in the darkness. They're not in the light. They're stumbling around. So arguing and attempting to prove things before they have eyes to see and ears to hear is, is pointless. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 16 explains that with the same kind of imagery about these same kinds of people. He says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's what Jesus is showing us here by ignoring their questions and focusing in on, I'm not, we're not going to deal with the miracle that you missed when God spoke from the heavens. We're not going to deal with your hang-ups about a misunderstanding of these key texts about the Son of Man. We're going to go right at the issue. You are in the darkness and your time is limited. So he's gonna keep things of first importance. You need the gospel. You need to repent and believe. We'll explain all these other things after that moment. We'll dig into the prophecy about how we can understand the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman in relationship to the Davidic promise where there's gonna be someone on your throne forever. We'll, we'll, we'll connect those two after you repent, after you believe. So we do the same. We're not rude, but we're clear. Well, we can answer some questions and we can do those things, but we're not coming in trying to argue them into the kingdom. That's not Jesus' tactic. He doesn't answer any of the questions that he's usually asked. He's going right after their hearts. And we know each case is different. We know that, that people are all different and then they're all in different places. And we need to use wisdom. We understand that. But the principle stands. 
that an unredeemed mind can't understand absolute truth from the scriptures. It's like overcoaching little leaguers. You ever been at those games where it's t-ball and, and the coaches, have, they have the books and they're keeping score of the books, but everybody gets to bat and everybody gets to score. So what are we keeping books for? Like we're, and we're telling them, like, hey, step on the bag, turn the double play, run a throw down there. And they're like, I don't have my pants on, coach. They, we, we, I coach Little League and we've been there so many times that we're trying to talk about like, hey, there's multiple ways to get outs. And they're like, which base do I run to when I hit it? Jesus is saying, that's what you're doing. I, I'm not going to explain to you the 6-4-3 double play when you don't even know what sport this is. I'm going to come after you at the most importance. You are in the darkness, and it's about to be dark for you if you don't come into the light. So we see Jesus in this moment. Where did he start out? I mean, we've been piecing up this conversation that he's been having. At the end of it, he sa it says of him that when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So this is a, this is a big turning moment, moment. And where we started out this conversation, or this part of the conversation, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. But does he stay focused on himself? He turns right to these people. Glory to God, ministry to people. He says, Father, glorify yourself. And these people who don't understand that and they miss the miracle and now they have a bunch of questions, he doesn't deal with those questions. He goes right for their hearts. So we have to see here the magnanimous love of God in the shadow of an imminent cross where he's going to sacrifice himself to satisfy himself to save us who are asking dumb questions that we think he doesn't know. This is the love of God. What kind of love is this? Jesus, who feels the weight and he's enduring wrath that you and I and all the redeemed, all the elect of God will never know. We will never know that wrath, ever. It's been completely absorbed in Christ. And he, in that moment, when he's feeling that turmoil, can still turn and focus on you and on us, on me. This is a similar type moment that we'll see when Jesus is actually on the cross, enduring the wrath, is still praying. Hey, John, make sure you take care of my mom. Hey, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's still concerned about the glory of God and the good of his people. What kind of love is this? This is why we worship. Is it not? Amen? This is why we worship this, this Savior, because of this. So we come here, not for us. Like we read last week in Psalm 115, not to us, but to your name. Be glory. We're here to know who he is and what he has done. And that only comes to us through the inerrant scriptures, the written word and the living word. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, when we read a passage like this, when we see you, Lord Jesus, as we, we could address you right now, that your soul was troubled. I, we don't even know. We couldn't see, and it can't really even be fully written out, the true horror and the true terror of the wrath that you endured. And the blessed truth is, is that we who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, we'll never know that wrath. We'll never even sniff it. We'll never get near it. We'll never observe it. Our soul will never be troubled like that. Not even close, not even comparable to whatever it is that we could possibly endure down here. That's why men and women who have gone before us can die 
in those noble ways and can die without fear and trouble in their soul because they know that the greatest ultimate payment has already been taken care of. So we can walk in that faith. Thank goodness that you have not made us walk by sight, but by faith. Faith in this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, born as a seed of the woman, crushed to the head of the serpent, not without cost to himself. Lord, that's why we worship. We ask that you would cultivate in us hearts of worship and spirit and in truth, just like Jesus said to the woman at the well, and that that wouldn't be wrapped up in music, music stylings, that wouldn't be wrapped up in, in flavor preferences, that wouldn't be wrapped up in, in anything that we can cultivate, in anything that we can create. But what we see revealed to us in your word, that we would be brought to humble gratitude by the taking of your supper, by the hearing of your word read and preached and prayed, by the fellowship of the saints, by the dwelling in unity and the bond of peace with one another, and by enduring suffering from a watching world who does not have eyes to see or ears to hear and who is stumbling in the darkness just like we were. So may we rightly understand those we live around. May we have similar compassion that Christ had. And may we never give an inch on the truth. May we cling to it no matter what it costs so that you may be glorified in your name. And may we pray that with Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.